Good morning. Today is Sunday, the 27th day of November 2016. In the early days of the motion picture, it was customary not to credit the actors. That changed with one woman, the world's first movie star, and today we have her story on the 114th episode of Sunday Morning Coffee with Jeff. for coffee and I am your host and storyteller Jeff Kelly. Thanks for having a cup of coffee with me today. Well, I hope all those listeners in the United States had a fantastic Thanksgiving and I hope it wasn't too much of a downer for all the Native Americans who might find it insulting. When I was a kid, I saw a film, a Western. I think it was at the drive-in. For you listeners under 40, ask your parents what a drive-in theater was. Anyway, I remember one scene in which the good guys were trapped in a store or in a saloon or something like that, and the bad guys were riding their horses by the open door and shooting inside. One of the good guys ran and jumped on the ground outside the door, causing the horses to jump over him, which prevented the bad guys from shooting. He later explained that a horse will always jump over a man lying on the ground. That's all I remembered, and I had no idea what movie this was. For years and years, every time I watched a Western, I wondered if this was the film that contained that scene that I remembered. For some reason, I was thinking that this might have been from one of the Magnificent Seven movies, but I watched them all. I think there's four or five, and nope, it wasn't from any of those. Finally, about four or five years ago, I watched the John Wayne film El Dorado, and I saw James Caan do exactly what I remembered. For more than 40 years, I wondered about that scene, and now the mystery was over. Why, I asked, did this one scene, from all the films I saw as a youngster, sit in my head for all these years? I have trouble remembering people I went to high school with, people I interacted with almost every day for four years, but this one scene from a Western wouldn't leave my head. One last thing, the film came out in 1966, which would have made me five years old. I wonder if I actually saw it in the drive-in, or maybe it was on TV, I'm not sure. And this story really has nothing to do with anything. It was just on my mind, and I had nothing written for the beginning of today's show, so I thought I'd tell a story about me. You know, I still need a few films from my upcoming show about strange and original movies, you can just email me at coffeewithjeff at gmail.com or you can use Twitter, Facebook, Carrier Pigeon, Smoke Signals, The Telegraph, or even a ham radio to get hold of me. And by the way, the Joe I talked of last week is really named Brian. But then again, it's probably a common mistake, Joe for Brian, you think? <laughs> anyway, how about the story of the world's first movie star? This podcast is part of the Psycon Network. You can support this podcast and others like it by becoming a subscriber at patreon.com forward slash Psycon. That's C-S-I-C-O-N. A link can be found on the Coffee with Jeff website. 
Just a dollar or two is all it takes to keep these podcasts going. Thank you for your support. Motion picture pioneer Carl Lemley Sr. was presented with a testimonial scroll by Rupert Hughes on the occasion of his 30th year in movies. A gala studio party at Universal City was attended by great Hollywood figures. This is how they looked 25 years ago. Edward Arnold and Otto Kruger, Cecil B. DeMille and Jesse Lasky, Mae Robson and King Bagot, Vinnie Barnes, Charlie Murray, a veteran of the silent screen, all joining in congratulations to Carl Lemley. In 1984, a film was produced starring Dudley Moore called Best Defense. It did so poorly during test screenings that Paramount Pictures panicked and quickly attempted to figure out a way to save the film. Eddie Murphy was, at the time, one of the hottest stars on both TV and film. He had become a huge star on Saturday Night Live and then had two massive film successes with 48 hours in trading places. So Paramount had a part written just for Eddie Murphy, which was to be spliced into the film. Murphy claimed that he was paid more money for about a week's work than he was paid for both 48 hours and trading places. Paramount figured he was the biggest and hottest Hollywood star, so his name alone would save their product. Of course it didn't. The film was a big-time failure. But that shows you just how a name alone can attract a big paycheck. It wasn't always that way. There was a time in the early days of filmmaking that the big studios wouldn't allow actors' names to be known. They feared their actors becoming big stars because they knew the consequences. That changed with one person, a female actor. She is credited as the first film star in America. She was known as the Imp Girl or the Biograph Girl. And she made 300 films for various motion picture companies throughout her career. She was born Florence Annie Bridgewood in Hamilton, Ontario on January 2nd, 1886 to George Bridgewood and Charlotte Lotta Bridgewood. Her mother, Lotta, was a leading lady and director of the Lawrence Dramatic Company and went under the name Lotta Lawrence. By the age of three, Florence was appearing with her mother on the stage and by the age of six, she was known as Baby Flo, the child. By this time, Florence's father and mother had separated and Florence decided to take the name that her mother used on the stage and began calling herself Florence Lawrence. As soon as she was able to memorize lines, she began to perform dramatic roles on the stage. One day, her mother found her crying in bed and asked what was wrong. Florence said she didn't think they ought to make people cry because people don't feel good when they cry. Those dramatic acts were dropped from the repertoire. Now, while many who had been child stars during this era have horrible memories of touring the United States as part of a stage act, Lauren seemed to have only good memories of those days. She had five full touring seasons with the Lawrence Dramatic Company, and then several things changed in her life. Her father died from an accidental coal gas poisoning at his home in Hamilton, Ontario on February 18, 1898. This probably didn't have much effect on her as she rarely saw her dad, but soon after, her mother moved the family, Florence and her two siblings, to Buffalo, New York to live with the kid's grandmother, Ann Dunn. And for the first time, Florence entered school. At first, her family worried that after all these years on the road, in which she was used to getting her own way, she would have problems with school. Yet, it seemed Florence did very well. She was a tomboy who played baseball and loved riding horses. 
When asked about her two older brothers looking out for their younger sister, her mother said she never needed anyone to look out after her. She may or may not have graduated in 1904. Not very much is known about those days. But when she was around 20 years old, she began to long for those days on the stage and rejoined her mother on the road. She had grown into a petite girl with wavy blonde hair and expressive blue eyes. But then, for some unexplained reason, her mother disbanded the Lawrence Dramatic Company. It was around this time in 1906 that Florence Lawrence saw her first motion picture. She didn't really enjoy her time in the theater as she found that things had changed since she was a child. But then, near the end of 1906, she and her mother heard that Thomas Edison Studio was looking for actors to be in their historical photo plays. The woman who would be known as the first movie star had hooked up with America's first movie studio. Her first acting role was to play Daniel Boone's daughter while her mother was cast as Mrs. Daniel Boone. They were paid $5 a day for two weeks of outdoor filming in freezing weather. The film was called Daniel Boone or the Pioneer Days in America. When Florence first saw it, she was horrified, saying, In one scene, I'm shown crossing a log over a stream and wearing high heels. Just think of the situation. Daniel Boone's daughter wearing high-heeled shoes. Why, in those days, girls were fortunate indeed if they possessed a pair of moccasins. After seeing herself on the screen, Florence became fascinated by the world of film and decided to work on becoming a better film actress. This concerned her mother, and she laughed when Florence told her she wanted to be a film actress because real acting belonged on the stage. Lada begged Florence to reconsider, and for a while she did and returned to the stage. But then during some downtime while they waited for a new play to start up, Florence got the lead as an Irish peasant girl in a Vitagraph Film Company's one-reel version of Diana Bosicat's The Chagrin. She returned to the stage, and after the play she was working on finished up in 1908, she went back to Vitagraph and made a total of 39 films with the studio. Now, while this might seem like a lot, one must remember that many of these were one or two real films. They were made in a short amount of time, and some of them were as short as nine minutes long. Harry Stoller was an actor with Vitagraph, and he soon met Florence, and the two became great friends. Stoller was a longtime friend of David Work Lawrence Griffith, better known as D.W. Griffith. They knew each other from their days when they were broke and working in the theater. When Stoller took a job with his old friend, D.W., who was just starting to direct pictures over at Biograph, Harry found that Griffith was looking for a unique actress to be his regular leading lady. Harry suggested Florence, and soon she was working over at Biograph, making the sum of $25 a week. She had been earning $20 a week over at Vitagraph, but this required her to also work as a costume seamstress over and above acting. For Griffith, the paycheck was for acting only. Her first role, because she could ride a horse, was in The Girl and the Outlaw, and then she went on to make 60 films in 1908, including the lead in Romeo and Juliet, the first on-screen appearance of the tragic figure. Also in that same year, she and Harry Stoller married. Like I said in the beginning, these were in the early days of film when the actors weren't allowed to be credited for their work. 
Film studios feared that the actors becoming famous would require them to be paid more. Something, however, about Florence's face seemed to attract public attention, and the studio began receiving letters asking the identity of this beautiful lady. Biograph refused to reveal her identity, and they began referring to her as the Biograph Girl. Soon Florence was receiving double her wages. In an effort to capitalize on her success, Florence and Harry got in touch with the SNA company to offer their services as leading lady ad director. SNA reported this to Biograph, and the two were quickly fired. Carl Lamley was a maverick in the film industry. Up until him, most everything was controlled by Thomas Edison's monopoly on moving pictures, something called the Motion Picture Patents Company. Lamley had formed his own independent motion picture company of America, IMP, and what he needed was a big-name act to get his studio up and running. Carl signed Florence Lawrence and had decided to do something no one had yet done, to promote the actor. And Carl promoted her in a most fascinating way. He planted a story in the paper that the Biograph Girl had been struck and killed by a streetcar. Then on the following day, he took out an ad to announce that she was, in fact, alive. The ad read, We Nailed a Lie, and went on to blame the competition in planting this false story, and that the Biograph Girl, who is now being called the IMP Girl or the Imp Girl, I'm not sure, that she would star in his next motion picture, The Broken Oath, to be directed by Harry Stoller. There was a story in the paper that Lawrence made a personal appearance in St. Louis, Missouri in March 1910 with her leading man to show her fans that she was very much alive. And the story claimed that Lawrence's St. Louis fans were so excited to learn that she had not died that they rushed in a frenzy and tore off her clothes. It was true there were crowds there to meet her at the train station, but Lemley might have exaggerated the part of the tearing off the clothes. I had no idea that so many people were interested in me, Florence told the St. Louis Times. It seemed so strange that so many people would gather at the train to welcome one they had never seen, only in pictures. When Florence Lawrence became a household name, it started the whole Hollywood star system. And the studio's fears that stars in the movies would mean higher wages all proved true. As Lawrence and the others that followed, people like Mary Pickford, Charlie Chaplin, and Claire Bow, all got paid huge salaries. While at IMP, Florence made around 50 films before she left for the Lublin Manufacturing Company. It was fellow Canadian, the 18-year-old Mary Pickford, that took her place as IMP's star. In 1912, Florence and Harry made a deal with Carl Lemley, forming their own company called the Victor Film Company, with the studio being built in Fort Lee, New Jersey. With this new deal, they had complete artistic freedom, and Florence was paid $500 a week, while Harry got paid $200 a week for his directing. Now, in 1912, this was a lot of money. And a year later, the couple sold the studio to Carl Lemley as part of his new venture, Universal Studios. This was probably the happiest time for Florence as she was able to realize a lifelong dream, and that was to buy a 50-acre estate in Rivervale, New Jersey. And then, as Florence began to make films for Victor under the Universal umbrella, her marriage began to fall apart. 
Some say it began after a rude comment Harry Stoller made about his mother-in-law. I would assume there was more to it than that. But Florence left Harry on August 6, 1912. Stoller set sail for Europe, but he wasn't ready to let the marriage end. He began writing her love letters. One such letter went like this. Shall I come to New York? Will you give me a job with the victor? I will write you some beautiful stories, comedy or tragedy. You shall be Mamselle de Directus, and I will be Monsieur Lee Property Man. You can get me very cheap. I will work for love. Love. Some of his letters, some say, threatened suicide if she would not take him back. Also interesting about Florence is that she loved to tinker with and learn about automobiles. And in 1914, she devised a mechanism that served as a signaling arm for drivers wishing to turn. It seemed that by a simple push of a button, a flag on the bumper would go up and down, letting drivers behind her know which way she was turning. She also invented a sign that would pop up and read stop when the brakes were applied. Another invention of hers was the electric windshield wiper, which she began selling in 1917. Unfortunately for her, she never bothered to apply for patents for any of these. The ideas were quickly stolen and she never really profited from any of them. So anyway, Harry's letters seemed to have worked and he was soon back with Florence, and she announced her plans to retire from acting. But the Victor Film Company was struggling, and in 1914 she returned. But by now she didn't have the star power she once had, and her films from this period often didn't get distributed, and those that did didn't do very well. And then in 1915, while making a film called Pawns of Destiny, a planned fire got out of control. She was burned, her hair was singed, and she took a fall, injuring her back. Florence was out of work for months. She blamed Harry for the accident as he had not taken the proper precautions for the stunt, and on top of that, Universal refused to pay her medical expenses. In 1916, she came back to make another film, but this resulted in a relapse. She was paralyzed for four months. By this time, her marriage to Harry Stoller was over, but he died of a stroke before they became officially separated. Not only was she Hollywood's first big movie star, but sadly, it seemed that she was the first to see her star fade and be forgotten. Over the years, she attempted to stage comebacks at various times, but found the public just didn't care about her anymore. Or maybe they just didn't remember her. In 1921, she married automobile salesman Charles Byrne Woodring, and the two opened a cosmetic store. They would divorce in 1929. By now, her career was reduced to non-credited bit parts. The downward spiral continued as her mother, whom she was always very close to, passed away in 1929. She made a lot of money during the height of her career, but over the years, she made a lot of poor business decisions, and she lost most of it. The stock market crash of 1929 didn't help either. The cosmetics store shut its doors for good in 1931. She got married a third time to an abusive alcoholic named Henry Bolton, and he beat her severely. The marriage only lasted five months. In 1936, MGM offered aging silent film stars $75 a week to appear in small parts, and Florence worked for MGM until her death. 
In the 1932 Barbara Stanwyck film, So Big, she can be seen in a small part with a line or two of dialogue. In mid-1937, Lawrence was diagnosed with a disease that her doctor described as a bone disease which produces anemia and depression. She became terribly depressed but attempted to keep working. And then one day, on December 28, 1938, Lawrence called in sick to the MGM offices. She was found in her home, barely alive after ingesting cough syrup and ant paste. She was rushed to the hospital but died at 2.45 p.m. She left a suicide note to her housemate, Bob Brinlow. It stated, Dear Bob, call Dr. Wilson. I am tired. Hope this works. Goodbye, my darling. They can't cure me, so let's go with that. Lovingly, Florence. P.S. You've all been swell guys. Everything is yours. Her funeral was paid for by the Motion Picture and Television Fund. Her grave was unmarked until 1991 until a British actor who chose to remain anonymous paid for a memorial marker, which reads, The Biograph Girl, the first movie star. Florence Lawrence was only 52 at the time of her death. At the grave of D.W. Griffith in Crestwood, Kentucky, Mary Pickford leads beloved stars of the silent screen in homage to their greatest director. With Miss Pickford are Screen Directors Guild President Albert Rogel, Mrs. Griffith, Lillian Gish, star of Griffith's monumental film, Birth of a Nation, and Richard Barthelmas. On behalf of the motion picture industry, so many of whose innovations Griffith pioneered, the stars he made great paid tribute to a great director. Has anybody got a match? Thanks. Now I can light an old goal and listen to The Sad Sack. In the year 2000, an American novelist, biographer, and Hollywood historian, William J. Mann, published a novel called The Biograph Girl. In the novel, Florence Lawrence didn't die in 1939, but used her roommate's suicide to fake her own death, and that she's actually found alive and well and in a nursing home at the age of 107. Mann, who has written a lot of nonfiction books about Hollywood, has, in this case, written an entirely fictional story, but it does contain a lot of factual information about Florence. And as I wrote today's story, I wondered how many times this scenario has played out in Hollywood. A highly successful actor who fades into obscurity, especially in the days before TV, home video, and such, when films, once they finished with their rounds in the theaters, were just thrown into a closet or vault somewhere and forgotten about along with those that acted in the films. I mean, the theater-going crowd is constantly changing, and younger viewers, to no fault of their own, had no way to know about these once-famous people. I mean, I think about it. My nephew Tony, who is like eight years old, loves the original version of Ghostbusters, and he knows every line. But if this was in the 1930s or 40s, as soon as the original run of Ghostbusters was finished, it would never be shown again. Tony would have no idea who Egon and Peter and Ray were. Anyway, one more thing before I go. Um, I know that my voice sounds a little nasally today, and I'm probably pronouncing things a little off. That's because I have a cold. I've had this cold for about a week now, but it really hit me hard the last couple of days. 
it was a pretty rough Thanksgiving, and yesterday was a tough day to get through, but it's, it's actually a little better today, so I decided to go on with the podcast, and I, and I hope it wasn't too bad for all you listening out there. Maybe I shouldn't have done it, but, uh, yeah. but if you knew how many times I had to stop the recording to sneeze or cough or edit out my voice getting all Nick Nolte and stuff, I don't know. Anyway, how about we jump over to the ending credits? Like always, I'm going to encourage you to head over to our Patreon page. We need more subscribers. I know I whine about this every week, but trust me, we could really use a few dollars to help these podcasts. If you have a minute, just go over to SciCon.fm, that's SciCon.fm, and look for the Patreon link on the top. Every dollar you subscribe helps. And of course... A big thank you to all those that already support the show. Speaking of SciCon, why not go over to our website and check out a few of our other shows? You'll find an amazing amount of geek culture. We've got so many shows there, you won't believe it. Check out all these shows at SciCon.fm. You know, you can email me at coffeewithjeff at gmail.com for any reason. If you want to complain or just say hi, please do so. I'll answer your email. You can also follow me on Twitter. My name on Twitter is Coffee with Jeff, all one word. And I have a Coffee with Jeff Facebook page. Story ideas are always welcome. If you want to support the show but you don't have the coin, then just go over to iTunes and leave a review. And actually, I got a really nice review last month from somebody named Ang Napier, I think you pronounce it. Anyway, whoever that is, thank you so much. That was a wonderful review. Um... I can use more of those, because those really help the show's popularity. And remember, links to the sources I used to write today's story can be found at Psycon's Coffee with Jeff page. I'd like to thank Brecky Tomlinson for having this podcast on the Psycon Network. My wife of 32 years for being my wife of 32 years. David Metzger for designing the Coffee with Jeff logo. Kelly Rickert for writing and performing the Coffee with Jeff theme, and to all of you who repost the show on Facebook and Twitter, you have a special place in my heart. Thanks for listening, and I'll be back next week. Bye. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee. Coffee with Jeff. I want new. Get rearranged He's seen it all And he's weathered it too 
Thank you. 